With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We wanted to start from the bottom. We wanted to start from the bottom of the bottom. We wanted to know every aspect of this business, and we wanted to grow our own voice. You mentioned finding your own voice. Like, that's the real trick. And for 20 years, you've been in the club since you were 10 years old. Would you say there's any hacks to shortcut the 20 years? What would you do differently now to increase the pace? Um, I, I, I don't think you want to take the shortcut in anything that you're really passionate about and you really want to be a big part of your life. Yeah. You want to taste and feel and see and experience all of it. I do. Rolling? Rolling. There we go. Jay got it. So, Sherrod Small, yes. stand-up comedian, all-around personality. Yeah. I feel like you're actor, writer, producer, podcaster, radio broadcaster. You've done everything. I'm just trying to eat, James. You're, uh, you, you tour all over the country. You're all at clubs all around the city. I hope you don't mind me mentioning your Chris Rock's cousin and, and your cousin Tony Rock. When he was on, he mentioned how you guys together uh, basically grew up in the clubs, the comedy clubs, for yeah. the past twenty years, uh, uh, working hard and and paying your dues. So I wanted to have you on and talk talk more about it. Thanks for having me. First of all, yeah, Tony's like my brother. We grew up together and shit like that, and we started comedy together. I, I hate to say it, twenty years ago. Twenty years ago. It'll be twenty years in July. And, and he was he was telling me how. You would basically do like, tw you know, go up on stage 20 times a week. Oh, yeah. And if anybody wanted to hang out with you, like girls, guys, whatever, they'd have to like go to whatever club you were at like we that did, moment. We did every show. First of all, we did, even before we got into the clubs, we just did bringer shows and we did uh, open mics, Hamburger Harry's, uh, who we used to do, uh, Henrietta Hudson's. That was a lesbian bar. So as soon as you walk in with a dick, you're getting booed. <laughs> so you have to work that crowd. And I went there every, me and Tom went there every week for, I don't even know, six months. And like, and like what, you know, I always want to say, what drove you to it? Like, it's a hard, it's a hard life. It is a hard life, but I think we always. And you had, you had some kind of inspiration, I guess. You right. saw Chris do it and he became super successful and made a lot of money. So you had like this, you saw that there was a path to success. We knew it could work. And plus, even before the money, we saw Chrissy coming home with hot girls. And we said, we're going to do this shit. <laughs> this is what we're going to do. Every night he would come home with a hot one from like the comic strip or Catch a Rising Star. And was like, what the hell? Don't they know that he's a dork? <laughs> That's funny. And then um, would, he, would you see his attitude change like once he started getting bigger and bigger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Chrissy's always been, that's one thing I give him. He's always been the dude he is now. But he was just more annoying when nobody, when it wasn't famous. 
with somebody just snapping on you first thing in the morning. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was just annoying. And but, but once you started getting there, like when was SNL came around, and then yeah, it was it got big. And he used to come pick me and my cousin Brian up from from school, and the kids would lose it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is a thing that. So when you're a young kid and you see this right in front of you, like I want to be part of this shit. And so, so you figured you would try it. What was it like the first time you went up? First and, time- and, and so what, I, what, I, what I'm getting at is 20 years, you've certainly had this huge arc of learning where yeah. sometimes you would be on a sharp learning curve. Sometimes you'd be probably disappointed in yourself and you'd have to figure things out. Like, I'm just curious each step of the way, what you learned, how you re- realized you needed to learn it, what you failed at. And then ultimately you branched out to so many different things, like you said, to pay the bills. Yeah. And I'm just curious about the whole part. So like when you first started, what what was going wrong? What kept you going? I mean, I just was hungry from the beginning. I mean, I remember Greg Giraldo used to always say to me in tone because he used to always see us so excited at the clubs just because we got a spot. Like, that was a big thing for us. And he was like, man, I hope y'all never lose that enthusiasm because it's fucking, it's, it, just to see somebody that excited to just do these spots, he was like, it re-energized him in comedy too. It's like, it's addictive, and we were just always happy and ready to go. But we grew up, even before we started doing comedy, just from being around Chrissy, we used to come to the clubs, even when we were, like, fucking 10 years old. And just to see, like, to us, like, even Lucian, like, Lucian Hold, who ran the comic strip, to us, he might as well have been fucking Michael Jordan. Because <laughs> that's the people that we admired. And then when and you- Rick Newman, who owned Catch, it was like, Rick Newman, meant, and the other kids would be like this, who the hell are you talking about? <laughs> And then, but then when you started, you feel like, why are we starting at just at the Bringer shows? We know all these guys. We know no. Chris why, why aren't we just like right on the stage? We wanted to start from the bottom. Uh-huh. We wanted to start from the bottom of the bottom. We wanted to know every aspect of this business. And we wanted to, you know, just grow our own voice. You got to do a lot of different rooms to do that. Yeah. If like, you really want to get at it. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. Because I think, I think people confuse, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think people confuse stand-up comedy with pure humor. Like if I just, if my only goal is to laugh, I'll watch like cat videos on YouTube. Right. Like there's something else about, like, and you mentioned finding your own voice. Like that's the real trick. Like you look at like the greatest comedians of all, they they find their voice and then magically their career just shoots through the roof. But that takes, that takes time. And plus we all start, as comedians, we all start with other people's voices. Whoever your favorite comedian is, you're going to have a touch of that in your fucking stand-up when you go on stage. So you might f- hear some tell and your shit, or hear, but gradually you get out of that and find you. But we all use each other as crutches to go up. Even I remember back in the day, even before I was in comedy, I remember uh, Colin Quinn used to get mad at Dave Attell because he said he was still in his act. Hmm. People don't know the history. See, y'all don't know the history. They used to have beef because Colin said he was stealing his shit. That's funny because David Telsa has such a unique voice too. Unique, so as, different from Colin Quinn. Exactly, but it had to come from somewhere. Like he had to use somebody as a crutch to define your voice. You use whatever you know to try to get where you got to go. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I think uh, further back, of course, there was always people were always saying Robin Williams was stealing different people's yeah, acts. He takes people's. Uh, yeah. Rosie O'Donnell was accused of stealing Jerry Seinfeld's act. Like it's been just forever. Yeah. So, so who were your earliest influences? So many, man. I mean, I mean, some of them had to be historical in the sense that you didn't know them personally, and some of them had to be the people yeah. you were seeing every night. Well, you know, I definitely like you know Pryor and all that kind of stuff, and Lenny Bruce, because we all we had those books in the house because Chrissy had, so we just ran, through, we just read all that shit, and we watched all the videos. Bobcat Goldthwait, one just funny, 
we uh, I had so many favorites that I was just maybe off the off the mainstream uh, charts, but the, the, I just like comics. I just I think all comics have something to give. And then and then when you're writing those first jokes, like what would be your process? You and Tony would be writing together. Yeah. What would be the process? We usually are write either we write together or we'll write it separate, and then can't wait to tell the tell each other what we wrote, and then help build each build on it. But the process was just usually we just try to write maybe five to, to ten minutes and then get on stage because most of it's going to grow on the stage anyway. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you would just to kind of take notes. Would it be? Would you think in terms of setup punchline? Or Mostly just, bullet points. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Some at the first, I guess the first initial jokes it was more written in it because then you learn. Okay, I, all I really need is these. I can cut the fat off, get to the bullet points, and then build the shit on the stage. Right. What is it? so? So let's talk about that because because I'm sure the process evolved. But but Tony described something similar to me. What would be like? sample bullet points and what would be what does it mean build the shit on the stage because i think i think that process of you know using the stage and the audience to to generate ideas in your imagination on the spot that's almost like a sport like yeah it is you know and and, and then when you get that reaction from the crowd it's like winning at the sport yeah so so what is what what would you do what's the process actually like we just always got What's a bullet a, point. A bullet point would be like Subway or a fat girl or a dating, and then something about dating, like breaking up, and then maybe you have your own personal story about breaking up, and then when you take that to the stage, you'll see when you breathe air into it, even how the crowd reacts to certain parts. Because some parts you'll be like, "This here's where the laugh is." When you write it, it's like the laugh might not come there, so you got to really take it to the stage before you see where the actual organic laugh comes from. So okay, let's 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 take that as an example because I always find. So I've been doing public speaking for a long time, and people, I always have been able to get people to laugh, but stand-up comedy is different right. because it's sort of like, you know, people don't always follow this and it's not really a rule, but people always say you want to get people to laugh every 10, 15 seconds or so in, in stand-up. In public speaking, that it doesn't, if you get them to oh. laugh at all, it's a huge win. Right. So, so, <laughs> so I, I, and I often riff in public speaking and often it's, it's funny, but it's, it's, you know, to kind of squeeze it down to every 15 seconds, you, it's hard to do. So I have a hard time telling real stories on a, a stand-up comedy stage. So if you, you, like dating and breaking up and you have a personal story, you broke up with some girl and it was hard or whatever, how would that turn into a joke on but stage? But you can add stuff, just in storytelling on stage, you can add stuff. Just like if you say, hey, I broke up with my girlfriend this week. First of all, she had all the power in the relationship. Let's do something like that. Because she had the vagina. And a vagina just more, you know, if I had a vagina, I wouldn't pay for anything. And she took it away from me. And then you go into more personal things. Then you come back to a, maybe a joke, like if I had a vagina, I wouldn't pay for Metro card or Nintendo Switch. <laughs> and she had all the power, all the hand. And you, just, you build it like that. Uh -huh. But you just got to, you just, as long as you stay as close to the truth, the funny and all the real shit is really where the jokes are. And I guess that's what you what you refer to when you're sort of finding your your voice. Right. Like, what would you say? And And by the way, we've kind of skipped a lot of stuff like, you know, I want to talk about the Race Wars podcast. Also, Michelle Wolf just did the White House Correspondents Dinner. You yeah. were on CBS yeah. as their official commentator yeah. about that. All these interesting things you do. But I, I am still fascinated by kind of the, the process of the process. So, so like, finding your voice, what, was, what does that mean? It's just you got to go on stage a lot. I just, the, for me, how I did it is just I just stayed doing it. And then eventually you'd be like, holy shit, how did I get here? And now I sound separate, different from everybody else. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But just doing it and doing it and doing it. I think it's also important to do it in other rooms and doing it around because you're going to get a different feedback and vibe from each room, each crowd. I think I never had a crowd that was the same, ever. <laughs> I did a million shows. They all organically different. And some of these things are work different ways in these rooms. And then you see, then you'll find tricks out of the trade where you can, you know how to manipulate the crowd and make them uh, pay attention and, and laugh at a certain point. Then how do you do that? It's just the words. It's just the, you just gotta make sure you got their attention. Like let's say a crowd, like you're 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 starting your set. Uh, you're doing jokes that you know have killed in the past, but the crowd, for whatever reason, is silent. I'll just go. Um, you know what? I know. Uh, I might I might say smart people help the slow people. I might say something like that. Uh, just anything simple, because people go like this. Well, I ain't no slow person. They say that to themselves, so they'll lock in and start paying attention. Right. And start hearing the I jokes. I like that. Smart people, you got, come on, smart guys, help us. Yeah, uh, I just prod them like cattle. Uh, <laughs> I don't give a fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, that's what I've heard said about your your comedy, and I and I see it too on on your stuff. Is that uh, it's like you don't really you, you come across as you don't really care what the crowd's thinking. Um, you know, one time at the Comedy Cellar, you you said, "Look, I'm not going to spoon feed you guys." Like, I think you have to have this, or tell me if I'm wrong. You have to have this attitude that you don't care what they're thinking, so yes. that they come to you. Yes, you don't want to listen. Nobody would go. No audience would go to a try comedy club if it was named Try Comedy, because nobody wanted to see you trying shit in public. That's for babies and uh, slow people. Right. They don't want to see adults try. So if you look like you're not driving the fucking bus up there, they're gonna feel nervous in the bus. <laughs> So you got to have all the confidence in the world. I don't give a fuck what it is. I remember Colin Quinn used to have a joke. He's like, if, even if you have a bucket of shit, if you go like this, hey, back up, guys. I got my bucket of shit here. Please back up my bucket of shit. People go like this. I need a bucket of shit. <laughs> so if funny. you believe in it, then they'll believe in it. But so, you got to have that. So it seems like confidence more important even than the writing process and the humor. Like how did you, how did you develop that confidence on the stage? You just got to believe in what you're doing. You only can do what you can do. I can't not. I can't go on stage and not be me. So I'm gonna be me. If I can fail at me, I'm good at that. I'm I'm, I'm fine with that. But then if I can win with me, then I'm good with that too. But Are I'm not really gonna try to change it, like, it up. Like like you do 15 minutes and there's total silence and you get off the stage. Are you like, hey, I just did the best I could? Or James, I'll be honest with you, that never happened to me. <laughs> never. <laughs> Right, but I mean, good. even if you don't get what you want from the audience, see, sometimes the audience are funny. Laughing in public for some people is just like crying in public. People don't always share emotion in public. That's why it's so weird for them to come and laugh. When you hear a room full of laughter, it's like, that's something you usually don't hear in life. Yeah. So a lot of people are uncomfortable with showing emotion like that. Sometimes you'll have a crowd that's quiet as shit, and then when you in, they go ape shit. Yeah. And you're like this, where the fuck were y'all the whole time I was up there? I thought you was hating me. But they loved it the whole time. So you don't know how they're going to share their like or dislike all the time. And, and I mean, has your process changed much since those beginning days? Like, like do, you, do you write all the time? for? Yeah, I, I jot shit all the time. I, I'm always trying to keep notes. Because most of the time I'll think of something, just like any comic, we'll think of things and then we don't put it down and be like this. Ah, fuck, what was it that I was thinking about? And then that's torturous. So I try, yeah. to, I try to at least jot something or put it on my phone or send me a text message. And then how do you, um, I know I'm asking all these specifics, I'm, I'm really interested in all this. Uh, like, when you, when you just get on stage, let's say the crowd doesn't know who you are, you're, you're opening joke, you want to kind of both make yourself likable and you want them to laugh. What are you thinking for that opening joke? Something with AIDS. No. <laughs> <laughs> Lead off with an AIDS joke. <laughs> they like That'll that. Always, uh, That'll always break up a crowd. Yeah. 
Especially at the schools. They like that. Right. No, I mean, you just try to go in there and, you know, hit them hard first. Get their attention real fast. Like, what's an example? Sometimes you go on and say nothing. Huh. And you'd be shocked how silence is the best fucking tool you have on stage. Just silence. No words. If you get on stage and just look and stay there for 10 seconds, I guarantee you, you laugh. I guarantee it. And then it brings them in, though. Yeah. And then you got them. Sometimes it's not how, that's like some comics like Todd Barry got a slow approach. Yeah. But that slow approach brings the crowds in. And some people go right at a crowd. So it's different ways to get the same effect. Yeah. yeah. You just gotta, you know, you just gotta find your way. Like, it's like a uh, fingerprint. What's your, what's your usual way? What's your... I just try to make it, I just try to make it organic and make it real. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes, I, and I play it by ear. Sometimes if you go in too hard with a crowd, they'll recoil. And you'd be like, this crowd ain't good. It's like, not really. You could have came in a different way and made them good. It's like, look, the crowds are always the novice in the room. (laughs) I don't care how many shows they've been to. We've done more as performers. So we're in charge of that. And they, the jokes don't need them to be funny. (laughs) Because we do so many shows, we know these shits are funny. So you, as long as you know that, you you'll find transcendence. <laughs> I guess I guess Seinfeld said that he always said that whenever um, the crowd was silent, he would just fall back on the material, and eventually the material would win. Yep. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's Seinfeld, and and you're Sherrod, and, and you're both saying this. But it seems to me like if if you've lost a crowd at some point, if they just don't like you, they're not going to laugh no matter what the material is. Not necessarily. Sometimes when you lose a crowd, you can get them back. Mm-hmm. I think most of the time. But sometimes when you lose a crowd, you go like this, fuck this crowd. I'm going to lose them more. And you learn, you actually you learn a lot from those sets mm. where you just say, fuck it. Y'all want to go there? Let's go. Mm. I ain't going to try to win you over. I'm not going to charm you. I'm just going to give you these jokes. Like, what's, what's the worst example where you really thought a crowd hated you and you said, I'm just going to lean into this and, and, and have those. fun? Oh, I had several of those. And those turn into the, some of the best sets, I swear. Like like what happened? Uh, maybe, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think like the last one that I had like that. I think it might have been The Stan. Or it might have been downstairs. I don't remember what room it was. Oh, it might have been West Side. I don't know. So many shows. But the, the crowd was just cold and tired and they were just not giving it. And I was like, all right. They, I, I could pull at them and try to get them that way. And then I said, you know what? Let's feed into their dark feelings. And what they're going through right now. And that won them over. That made them come like, back. Like, what did you say to feed into their dark feelings? I, uh, first of all, I started off like, first of all, crowd, it's late for me too. <laughs> Just to humanize the situation. And then I went into it. It's like, you look like you arguing with your girlfriend. You look like you, you know, you can't pay your bill. You look asking what gratuity is. And then I just ran with that. And then that brought them back. Brought but, these monkeys back in. <laughs> but what's interesting there is... You didn't ask, so sometimes crowd work, you ask them questions like, where are you from? What's your job? These kinds of things. Yeah. You weren't asking them questions. You were making statements. Yeah. And I, I sometimes find with silent crowds, whether it's stand-up or even public speaking or even in a business meeting, statements about somebody where they have to kind of either pay attention or defend or for figure out what you're saying, yeah. that brings them to greater attention than if you ask them a question. Because if you ask them a question, they might it's be like annoyed at you. It's like a test, like a quiz. Nobody wants to take a pop quiz right. and be embarrassed, but I'll just make my assumptions. I'll read them, get what I get from seeing them, and then just play off of that shit. Right, and that brings them to that, like you said, it like snaps them to attention. Like they have to, yeah. what did he just say about me? Yeah. Like they have to you know, understand if whether they're going to play a role or not. It's just like in school, teacher call on you. If you hear your name, you're like, this fuck, I gotta fucking pay attention. Or he they look right in your face and they talk right to you, then you gotta lock in. 
And what about, uh, is this a similar process for like closing joke? Like, do you know in advance what your closing joke's going to be? A lot of time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to, you know, but sometimes you switch it up or mix it up. What's your, you know, what's your perspective on like, you know, if you watch Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock. Uh, Never heard of them. <laughs> uh, Gerard Carmichael. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the jokes are always about race. It's the natural, and your your podcast, Race Wars. Yeah. So it's sort of like. Well, a, we named our podcast Race Wars just to keep sensitive people away from it. Uh huh. Because of you know, if you listen to a show and say, "Oh, they really pissed me off at what they said," and then people say, "Hey, what's the name of the show?" and you say, "Race Wars," they'd be like, "You're an idiot. <laughs> Why are you listening to that?" I wanted to name it Kicking Babies. Well, I forgot <laughs> who said. I forgot who said the joke. Um, Racists don't go to comedy clubs to tell race jokes. Right. Like racists yeah. <laughs> like are wearing white hoods somewhere. Yeah. They're not like standing up on stage and talking to 15 people about racist they jokes. They might do it at the water cooler. <laughs> right. But but it so so it's sort of odd when people say that's racist or that's offensive. Like if someone's really an offensive person, they're not going to a Yeah, they're not going to the microphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you're in the green room with all the other ethnicities. Right. <laughs> Most of you know, no clubs are like all white as far as like performing. So if, even if you, it's a silly thing to do if you're a racist to get into comedy. <laughs> but you know, here, here's, here's the question I have. So well, they do. So I, uh, in almost, not just on stage or, but just in everyday life, I never even, because of who I am, what I look like, I never even think or talk about race. And yet, um, you know, black, it's so much a part of a black person's life and it's so much a part of a black comedian's life. This is this is your material. There's so much content about race. Yeah. And just- Because we deal with it. When it's in your face like that, you got to talk about what's happening. Like how so often, and, and I'm asking this from a totally naive perspective, how often do you like deal with it in daily life? Uh, enough. Yeah? Yeah, mostly like, me talking about my black dick. <laughs> And I'm then people are like, why did you talk about that? <laughs> I'm like, Please I don't know. pull you over. I like. always talk about it on the bus. <laughs> I'm on the bus when I do that. I mean, yeah, you just, you just deal with, you're going to see somebody cross the street or move the bag. It ain't like just white people do it. Black people do it to black people. But that's still a race thing, kind of, yeah. Sort of like how, you know, that Greer Barnes joke, he did it on Colbert, where he's like, uh, if I see... You know, if I'm walking in Harlem and I see a white he woman in front of me, he's got he's got to cross the street. Oh yeah, all the time. Ain't nothing <laughs> scarier to black people than a lone white woman late night in the ghetto. It's like, what does this bitch know that I don't know? <laughs> Let me get out of here. <laughs> right. That's funny. This is a setup. <laughs> so so it's funny though, but like it's almost like you're 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 given all this material yeah. that you could work with that, you know, and and it's everybody, every, like again, you know. You, Chris Rock, Dave, everybody, Godfrey, everybody talks about race. White comedians don't really talk or, or some speak. Some do, but yeah. the thing is to, well, some, some do. Some talk about race, but uh, I guess they talk about it in a different way, but not a lot of white dudes. A lot of white dudes will talk about dating or, you know, something else. <laughs> but I think nowadays everybody got to have some, and plus... When a lot of you see a lot of people talking about any topic, you got to make your angle fresh and new and a different perspective. Otherwise, right, guess, it just sounds right. like a re fucking hashed. So I guess that's your, that's the challenge because, for instance, it's if a I, big challenge. I'll hear Dave Chappelle and Gerard Carmichael both make the same similar joke, not the same. Like they're not copying each other, but similar joke. Like you have to. Right. Prob probably the challenge is is to find that fresh material because you have everybody from Richard Pryor on kind of dealing with this topic. 
But you, your everybody here's the thing. Everybody's perspective is different, though. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a shade different, but if you stay close to what your real perspective, everything, and your truth, it it's going to be different than somebody else's. At the end, the end process, it might sound the same, might have the same premises, but you can make a different angle and show a different side to it. I think everybody has a different side. We all see things differently, even if it's a similar. We all see something different. So, like, uh, like give me an example, like where you. Uh, Almost every example you come up with, I'm sure I've heard from from some other comedian. So how do you how do you go about making it fresh? I'm sure you've heard from some other comedian. So so how do you listen to that and then try to make it fresh? I just try to keep like I just try to keep it my perspective, and I just try to keep it my sense of humor. And I think as long as I stay close to that, it'll be different than other people's shit. Mm -hmm. Like everybody talk about the cops. There's a lot of cops thing. Black black people into cop. I think every black comic will have a cop joke. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, 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 like Chris. Uh, so let's just look at their last two specials: Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. Right. So Chris Rock would say, uh, you know, I'm famous, but I'm not Michael Jackson famous. Right. And then he has the joke where oh, the yeah. cops don't recognize him. Yeah. And they're making, they're insulting him until they're like five feet from him. And they're like, oh, Chris Rock. And uh, <laughs> right. uh, and then Dave Chappelle has the thing where the cops are pulling him over, and his friends like all panicking, and Dave Chappelle's like, I'm not worried at all. I'm Dave Chappelle. And that's his perspective was, on it. But that's a newer perspective for Dave. He that, that wasn't his early perspective. Right. He had an old joke about him being in a car, getting pulled over with a white friend, and his white friend's all arrogant, and he's scared of shit in the car. Right. And meanwhile, his white friend's turned up the radio, and he's like, we're not going to take it. <laughs> As the cop walked up to the car, <laughs> and he he has he has all the jokes about like if you're in a gang, you better have like some white people in the gang because you know if shit goes down, you need the yeah. white person to talk to the cops. Yeah, so he has this whole thing. But you're right, it did switch. Yeah, yeah, I heard that kind of that kind of premise before type of thing. Yeah. So how do you? How well, do you my deal show with that? actually on A and E. Me and Christian Finnegan uh, had a show on A and E called Black and White. So, so just to put that in perspective, so Christian Finnegan is like the whitest looking comic. He's on very the white. If you have, if you watch Chappelle's show, he played. He was in the real, real world. He played the white kid who uh, they was fucking his girlfriend. Remember the real, real world? It was on Chappelle. It was a uh. big skit on there. People think he was on every season. He was on that one sketch. <laughs> But yeah, he's the whitest dude. And Neil Brennan hired him because he was like, he was the whitest dude that he knew. Huh. Christian's very white. So we had a show on black and white. Very funny. Me and Christian did a lot of TV together. A lot from Best Week Ever with a bunch of shit. Was it odd that A&E called you guys for this? Uh, Were you yeah. like pitching the show around and A&E took it? Well, it, yeah, A&E got interested. History Channel was interested too because it's the same owners, A&E and History Channel. Yeah. So they actually had an internal thing going back and forth. And I was weirded out by both channels because I'm like, are y'all really going to get behind this? Because we really saying some edgy shit. Well, and they how, paid for it. Who, who, who came? How did it happen? Like, because I'm curious about this process also. Like, did you and Christian come up with this idea and, and pitch it to an agent? And the agent oh. said, you know, this is perfect for the History Channel. No, what happened was, first of all, I told Christian years ago, because we always did TV shows together. I said, motherfucker, let's do our own show. We don't got to wait for the white man to give us a show. Right. They put us on every show together. So let's do our own. And then uh, eventually we did it. <laughs> But we uh, we already knew producers, so we just brought our own producers who we trusted, who we and we told them about the idea. They were very excited about it. And then who, we just, who's they like A and E? No, Jim uh, Jim uh, Jim Barrowman and uh, oh my god, Jim Biederman and um, God damn, I'm forgetting names. But that's what I'm just thinking. Like, were they producers who were, had like deals already with A and E? Or? They, yeah, they had. They, well, they had relationships with A and E and a couple other networks as well. So then they would help you pitch the full show, right? Then we and, went in, and then plus, uh, people who were, were working at A and E 
we already I already knew from working at VH1, and some of the same uh, head people over there moved to A and E, so they were very interested for us to bring a show. Over and there. they they would say, okay, here's a budget for a pilot, and then you made a pilot. Uh, with your producers, we first met with them. Told them the idea of some of the uh, execs from uh, like Texas or whatever came up. Uh, California came out, and we had a big meeting, and we just charmed them because <laughs> it was very different for them, right? It's just you and another comic talking about right. race issues and doing sketches and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you don't see Key and Peele on A and E. Like it's a very odd kind of format. Spike was sm- uh, sniffing around too. It's a couple channels sniffing around, but you know, money talks. And then uh, we knew, once we knew A&E and History Channel both wanted it, we, knew, we kind of figured it's going to end up with that company. Yeah. And, um, but what did it end up? I mean, you're, you're not there now. Like, did it right. end up not being such a natural fit for them? I, no. First of all, it was their first studio show, like live in studio show. on it Because they're trying to do a new thing over there. They're trying yeah. to, you know, bring a different edge. Because, you know, Duck Dynasty and shit, all that's gone now. So they were trying to bring a different edge. To, a different, they were trying to change the network. So we were the first studio show. It, I was like, if they promoted it right, I think it could have worked better. They just didn't market it as as well as they should have. Yeah, because it could have been a really like new, like they could have said this scared a new too. direction. It scared, it scared a lot of people over there. But because it, it, they probably have an older demographic, so maybe that scared them. But a lot of people over at the network loved the show. They loved, they laughed every time we fucking tested anything in it. Everybody loved it and laughed. But I can see that it can make some people nervous, definitely in Middle America. <laughs> And but the the lady who was in charge of the whole thing, she actually was a graduate from SMU. She was Southern. That's Southern Methodist. There's some Christian people who run that fucking network. <laughs> you think Jews run all of that? No, <laughs> they only run like ninety percent of them. Ninety <laughs> percent. But yeah, those Christians still got their hand in there. But they were really nice people. They were really cool, and they really let us do what we wanted to do. We shot what we wanted to shoot. Would you, and so you did sketches, and you did we and did sketches. We did interviews. We did a bunch of stuff. Did you guys have fun? Q&A. We had a ball. I mean, it was mad fun. I'm so happy about the finished product that we did. We did eight episodes. I'm happy as shit about the product, but they just didn't push it out there like that. And like, I'm just curious, with a cable show like that on a channel like that, how many people would watch per episode on average? I have no idea. Like, is it a million? Is it 100,000? Is it 10 million? Uh, I don't even know. I'm thinking it's somewhere around 700,000, somewhere around there, but they're trying to get more. Yeah. So it's so interesting because I just try to think of just the landscape of media. Like right now, you have Netflix and Amazon buying hundreds and hundreds of shows that nobody's ever going to hear about. Like 99% of the shows Netflix is making, nobody ever watches or hears about. And 1% will succeed. And and even with their comedy specials, they bought like 52 comedy specials last year. I think I watched, you know, maybe 10 of them. Right. And and Amazon's doing the same thing and Hulu's doing it. A lot of people get lost in the sauce, yeah. Yeah. It's easy to get lost in the sauce. And meanwhile, you have like YouTube channels that are, you know, if you have a good YouTube channel, you're going to get like millions of views an episode. So, so... It seems like people should should produce for YouTube in mind and not TV in mind right now. I don't know. Right. What do you think about I that? I think so, too. I think the whole landscape has changed. I think the way people watch uh, media and entertainment has changed. Definitely younger people. They don't sit in front of a fucking TV. They watch it on their fucking laptops and their and phones. and they, So you got to try to get that audience. And that's not always a network type of situation. Even though the networks are trying to chase that now. You know what I'm saying? They're trying to be... 
a mobile. They got all they got their mobile apps for every network, but it's still not the same as Netflix and shit like that. Well, even and I feel like Netflix eventually they're gonna have to stop paying ten billion dollars a year for original content because no one's watching their content. Yeah, like, they, they they paid a lot of money out these last couple of years, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it's like ten billion a year, and they, and they keep and Amazon and Netflix keep trying to up each other, right? And um, you know, and then Amazon's they they're all then canceling shows that don't you know that aren't like home runs like Amazon had a pretty decent nothing show nothing gets a chance yeah nothing gets a chance you don't get a chance. chance to breathe and grow no more well, it's right, either and, hit or gone like the classic example Seinfeld had, was like the bottom ranked show for its first two or three seasons yeah. and then of course became the number one show that wouldn't even last three episodes now yeah and you, you know when Amazon had a yeah. show someone kept telling me this I never watched it but someone kept telling me the best show you gotta watch the show Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon and I was about to start watching and then I just see Amazon just canceled it wow. so here was a show that had like a fan base and I guess it was pretty good enough for my friend to like it and just Amazon doesn't give any show a chance now did they uh, end that show mid-season? Um, I don't know but uh, like CBS just ended a show uh, being done by a friend of mine. Oh, the oh show yeah, Tony Robbins. They ended yeah, that show already, biblically. and it was. Uh, I was so angry they ended that fucking show. It was. A it was a show. good show. Yeah, AJ Jacobs, who wrote the art of loving biblically, he's been on the podcast like five times. Really, we, we were. We wanted that show to succeed. It's like they didn't give it a chance, man. Three or four episodes. But how do you? But so, what's the answer to that? Like, how do you fix that shit? Do you just change well, mediums? Think about, think about what's in between you and having a show produced. There's a manager, an agent, uh, first production company that buys the rights, then the production company has the relationship with the channel. Yeah. Then then you have um, CBS, the channel, but then there's CBS, the company. So there's so many people who who are not as smart as you, almost by definition, yeah. who have to say yes to this yes. every single show. Yeah. And, and they got their fingerprints on it too because somebody want to tweak this or turn this. Right, or so someone's this. either getting fired yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so they'd rather sacrifice you than their own careers. Right. And so I, I think the, I, I, we, we had like one of the heads of YouTube on here and just the numbers he was telling me, it seems like the only route to go is either YouTube, Instagram, or maybe podcasts, but Podcasts are not getting seven hundred thousand views an episode right. unless it's Joe Rogan or something. Right. So, like with Race Wars, you could you could essentially do what you did with with Christian with Race Wars. Yeah, that's by what we're doing and putting it on YouTube. Yeah, we we try we turning uh we already had offers to turn Race Wars into a TV show, and uh, I just wanted to do it the right way, and I wanted to do it on the right thing. So I think YouTube might be that option for us. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And 
I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm thirty five. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. 
Facebook.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. First off, you could take uh, Race Wars, the podcast, and you could add, you know, editing to bring in a little bit, a different type of humor. And then you have room for sketches too, like man on the yeah. street type stuff yeah. that you could throw in the, in the, in the channel. I don't know. I feel like there's something there because race wars. You are dealing with so you in each one is such interesting topics and conversations. You've got like such you know charismatic personalities on each one. Like that's that's the whole basis of it is you you take these you know high stakes topics. You have these charismatic personalities on who are comedians, and then if you throw in like elements like sketch and and editing, it's like you yeah. have a show. But is it a TV show or will you do better at YouTube? I don't know. Yeah, and plus, yeah. Then if you do it YouTube, then it's the money people get scared too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. People who put up money and they get nervous about because people who, I don't know, sometimes you just, <laughs> the risk, everybody don't want to take the risk. Because what we, we do talk about, you know, risky stuff sometimes. Even though it's like whimsical and fucking. Which you could do on YouTube, but not necessarily TV. Right. But TV still got, like as opposed to YouTube, I feel TV, at least for our generation, has that kind of, uh, you know, you feel good. Like TV chose me. Like yeah. I'm gonna be a TV star. Yeah. Kids don't give a shit. Like they, if I, if they're a YouTube star, that's, oh, that's, that's more than yeah, yeah, that's, they that's love better. That. Yeah, it is better. So, so because they realize, oh, I got 50 million people watching me. What do I need like a TV show for? And plus, there's a freedom in that for them. Yeah, for YouTube, it's like they, it's anti corporate. Even though it's corporate as fuck. Yeah, but they have a they feel like it's a corporate thing, and they can control their own destiny with it. Yeah. So like like you've done very good job of saying okay, I'm gonna build up my skills at stand-up comedy, which is an incredibly hard skill. You've been doing it for 20 years. You're among the best, but it's, there's so many different like micro skills you had to master. But you correctly said okay, I also need to work on my acting, and and you can list them. But you've been in a bunch of different things. Yeah. Uh, I need to be a writer. You've written up for different things. Yeah. I need to be a producer. Like. What are you producing now? You're producing a whole bunch of stuff now, right? Yeah, I'm doing a food show actually that I'm working on for uh, maybe be Food Network, but uh, with Carl Ruiz, who's a chef and a friend of mine. But he's on uh, Guy Fieri's uh, shows and oh, network. Yeah. yeah. And um, what's the food show? <laughs> I already had a food show too. Uh, Men versus food. Me and Bobby Kelly. You know, Man versus food. Adam show. Me and Robert Kelly, comedian. We did yeah. Men versus food on Travel Channel. After that. And and what was the show like? You just going around cooking? eating. <laughs> Going around to some restaurants and eating. Last week, I over two weeks ago. Good work if you can get it. Do you know this uh, Chinese Cuban place on the corner? Oh right yeah, yeah. Famous so place I just saw Bobby there. Kelly there like the other day. Oh, did you? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I didn't talk to him or anything. But uh, you should have said hi. I should. He was I, too busy eating them out of house and home. Yeah, <laughs> I like that episode of Louis where they're doing a bang bang. Like uh, they eat like two huge meals in a row because they're supposed to exercise the next day, and right. so they figure they're just gonna like do this one like blowout uh, eating fest, and then they decide not to exercise the next day. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so, but like, what, what what attracted you to doing a food show? Because I love food, for one. Mm-hmm. And it's just fun to shoot. It's a fun show to shoot. 
And uh, oh, I got a whole bunch of chef friends, and uh, I've been hanging out with them for the last few years. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, this this works. Bringing comedy and food together. I just did the uh, birthday uh, comedy show at the Comedy Cellar for uh, for Carl's birthday a couple weeks ago. For whose birthday? Uh, Carl Ruiz. Okay. It's Chef Carl Ruiz. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a great show. I had a whole bunch of comics on it, Bonnie McFarlane, Mark Norman, everybody. And um, a whole bunch of chefs came through. Guy Fieri came, Alex Shelley, who owns Butter. I don't know if you know Alex. She's also a judge on on these food shows. Yeah. On uh, Then um, Goldman from uh, Charm City Cakes. And Rocco DiSperino. Got to get Rocco in there. W- would you say your skills as, that you built up as a stand-up help with even something that se- seems unrelated but obviously isn't, a food show? Oh, yes, 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 definitely. So how? Stand-ups help with everything. All my TV, because first of all, stand-up gave me more confidence to even talk and joke and in front of cameras. Because yeah, if you can do it in front of people, a room full of people, the cameras don't mean shit. Right. And yeah, and you're and you've said in, in before, I think in the interviews, you're a shy guy. So like stand up. I'm bashful. <laughs> I could tell. And uh, so so, but but what what are some of the other skills that like stand up has kind of given you? Because it's more than it's more than just humor, and it's more than just confidence, and it's more than just crowd work. It's insight. It's fucking patience. Insights into what? Into just other people's opinions and other ways to think about things. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you got to broaden the way that you think about stuff sometimes. In order to see the humor. And I'm a topical comic, so I try to keep on top of whatever's happening. Right. So that's a lot coming at you, definitely in this day and age. Yeah. So yeah. And you have to look at it in a different way than, like, it seems like there's, on every topic, there's two opinions right now. Right. There's the sort of Fox opinion, and there's the MSNBC opinion. And I think it's maybe you, correct, again, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it's the comedian's duty to find. My opinion would be something all the, like, either, like something like uh, Oprah, they'd say Oprah's running for president in 2020. Yeah. Oprah went for you for president. And my, what I say on stage is like, Oprah for president, hasn't Stedman been through enough? <laughs> hasn't Stedman been emasculated enough? <laughs> now funny. he's got to carry the president's purse. <laughs> okay, so let's let's look at that process because if someone gave me as like a homework assignment, find the funny in Oprah running for president in 2020, probably the last thing I would have thought The Stedman angle. So how did you, is that just... Because he's just a dude who dates a girl and any guy who dates a girl is like this, I get it, you're an overachiever. <laughs> Can you make me some pancakes? <laughs> That's funny. But how did and we you, all can relate to that as this dudes. How did you connect? Like I, like I said, I wouldn't even have thought of Stedman. Right. But you're. But I guess, I guess it's a matter of like combining different things. Like okay, um, dating's always funny. Oprah's running for president. How can I combine the two? And how can I make p- regular people relate to the shit? Right. So, so dating is is a good one. Yeah. What are other things like that that you could say? I'm going to use this as an overlay onto this topic. And there's so many things. Like, okay, let's just take Trump and North Korea. Trump's going to North Korea to talk about nuclear weapons. Let's overlay something and make it funny. But Trump, <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Trump's going to North Korea to. to what, or he's okay. meeting. He's going to South Korea or something. I don't okay. even know the exact news. He's, he's well, meeting. first I would say I'm just happy that North and South Korea are finally making peace. Two groups of people that I will never be able to tell the difference between. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was pretty quick. <laughs> what was the, what were you thinking of? Like, what was the overlay? And then I say uh, everybody who looks alike hate each other. North and South Korea, Israelis and Palestinians. Me and my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was good. There you go. So, so okay. So the overlay was people who who look alike hate hating each other. Each other. <laughs> and so, so the idea is that often in families, people hate each other. Often, 
you know, and if friends hate each other. It makes it familiar to people. It makes yeah. it just humanizes it. <laughs> that was fast. Simplify. Like, how did you did you have like that overlay ready? <laughs> like what were you, what did you think of? Is it just like that's just how my brain thinks. <laughs> it just yeah. What's some what's some other like okay people who hate each other who look alike dating. What are some other overlays? I like this. I like this process. I, every comedian I talk to has like sort of a different process. Give me like a hint. I don't know. Give me. A, give me something. Uh, all right. What's a, what's another one? Um, another, another thing that's like currently in the news right now. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yeah. First of all, I don't have regular money. <laughs> you think? All right, boom. So, so, so poverty. Yeah, go go for that one. Right. It's like let me get a couple of dollars before I get Bitcoin. Kanye West. Kanye West. Uh, he was framed. I don't know. <laughs> Kanye. First of all, when Kanye's saying that slavery was a choice, I have to play devil's advocate on race wars for it, because it is a choice, but it's the worst choice you can have is either be a slave or die. Why did, I, I don't know the story. Why did he say that race is a, uh, slavery is a choice? Kanye's suffering from mental illness. Nobody really wants to tap into that. <laughs> and definitely not in the black community. Right. Mental illness might as well be voodoo. <laughs> Do you think he really is suffering from a mental illness? Yes. Do you know that for sure? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm making a, you know. Because he's a talented producer. Like, he's a great music producer. Arguably, I guess. <laughs> no, no, he's great. Great yeah. musician, great talent. Yeah, very talented producer. And mental illness and yeah. a taste of it. <laughs> Does he also have like an album coming out? Don't you think that every time he has something out? No, I mean I, that could be that angle. Remember how like South Korea, North Korea every spring they used to be like, "We gonna launch missiles just so we can send them food because right. the winter's over and they, everybody's starving." <laughs> it's all hustle, but I don't think he was hustling like that. So what's what? Else? You know, it's hard to say what's in the news. I don't read the news at all, so I'm like very. You scared of it, ain't you? No, it's it makes just you a, fearful. It's just that I think it's I think it's useless. I think it doesn't improve my life at all. Oh, if you do watch the news, though, what would you watch? Would you watch like the BBC or watch no? Your honestly, people? I don't. I do you I, read for ten the years? News? I haven't watched TV. I, I mean, I watch TV. I watch shows. Right. But I don't. I read books. Right. But I don't watch any news. I don't read any newspaper. I don't read any magazine. I just think it's boring, and I'm not interested. And it doesn't really inform you because the news they lie all the time. Right. And it doesn't make my life better. They just try to scare you. So how'd you find out about 9-11? You had to look out your window? Well, literally, I was at the World Trade Center that morning. <laughs> there you go. So that's how it's I like that out. plane's kind of close. I ain't going to read about this, but <laughs> that can't be right. No, I was walking. I was literally walking out of breakfast at the Dean and DeLuca World Trade Center. Wow. And my friend that I was uh, walking with, he, there was a plane coming in. And he said, is the president coming to New York today? Because this plane was just 600 feet high. And it was like seemed really low. And so we thought maybe it was Air Force One or something. Right. And then it just went right into the building right above us. So crazy, yeah. So that's how I knew about nine eleven. I wasn't actually uh, in Amsterdam doing shows. I just got there nine ten, and then the next day was nine eleven. So you couldn't get back. Couldn't get back. Had two weeks of shows. Me and Greer Barnes. Wow. We canceled that night out of respect. I said we're not canceling this tour. We did the whole fucking tour. It was great. Every show packed. We did theaters. We did Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Den Haag, Groningen, Tilburg, Utrecht, Harlem. We did the whole fucking country, and it was amazing. But and we couldn't, couldn't wait to get back home though. People were like, you're so lucky not to be the, in New York. I was like, no, motherfucker. I want to be in New York if New York goes down. <laughs> yeah, because no, New York had that bonding experience around it. But, yeah. uh, you know, it was a weird, it was a weird, well, it was a weird six months. I lived a block away. So it was, it was a weird. It was the most peaceful time. And it's, everybody was smiling at each other, saying hi. Yeah. It was, All the cab drivers wanted to make sure we knew they were American. So they had a million fucking American flags across the dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> Looking like evil Knievel, motherfucker. <laughs> 
So, but what's what's this something in the news right now? Stormy Daniels. Oh, Stormy Daniels. What the boobs? Did he? Didn't Trump just uh, admit that he did pay her? Yeah, he admitted he paid her. So what? Uh, first of all, I want to know this: Is he paying her for sex, or he paying her to be quiet? Because anybody, any man who ever uh, paid a prostitute or a woman for uh, for anything, you know, you're really not paying for the sex. You paying her to leave. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, I, so I've, so nobody I've, prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, when I, I used to work at HBO and I, I did interview prostitutes for a living for a while. So that was yeah, you did it for and, the job, and, and, and you, <laughs> you hit a son of a bitch. <laughs> but, but research you were doing. I was doing research. Yes, it's. <laughs> It's totally true. Client number nine, I believe you were. It's totally true. I was calling them on the phone. I can't even say I was meeting them in the person. But one woman did say that. that the men aren't paying for their sex. The men are paying, so we leave. Yes. And, and okay, but so that's an overlay about prostitution. That's a good overlay. And, and you know, the other, like I said before, the thing it seems like you and, and many other comedians have figured out, but not every comedian, many comedians, but not every comedian, is that you need the multiple sources of income. You can't just do it from stand up. Yeah. Like if you were to, some comedians do try to just do it from stand up, and I don't think it really works for them. I mean, it depends on what you need in your life and what you want in your life. And do you always want to be on a road a thousand fucking days a year? Because yeah, you, you can make your road, money, but the road makes money though. Like road we, makes money. Like look, TV makes money too. Look at Sebastian Maniscalco, right? He yeah yeah. He, nobody's even heard of him. He's never been on a TV show. I like Sebastian a lot. Yeah, he's, he's great. Dude. Yeah. Made fifteen million dollars on the road last year. Yeah, and can't get on a stage here at Stand Up New York. Right, <laughs> couldn't get on stage. He said to me specifically, "I bet you ask anybody at Stand Up New York who I am, they won't know who I they am." They wouldn't know. Comics might, if well, the good comics would. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they don't know. Yeah, yeah. No. He does Gotham though. He's represented by Levity, which does Gotham. Oh yeah, he does yeah. do Gotham. Yeah. But yeah, people will. But why won't him. you go on the road? Like that seems like a great source of. No, I go on the road. I go yeah, on you, road. you you yeah. go a lot, but like, is why wouldn't you just do that? Like seeing how because you have it's you have lonely. guys like Carrot Top and Sebastian Maniscalco make ten million a year, and it seems like a good lucrative source. No, well, if you going out for that kind of money, yeah, you hit the fucking road. Mm -hmm. But if you going out for uh, fifteen hundred for a two nighter, <laughs> that ain't Sebastian money, right. and it gets real lonely on that fucking road. So, so, but you have a lot of stuff going on here. Like you have, like, like I said, the podcast. You have yeah. radio stuff. You have TV stuff. What are what are all the things you're working on right now? I'm just, and I got the production company, Small World Comedy, and we've been doing a lot of stuff now. I'm doing a, and we're gonna shoot a special. It's a, it's secret, but I got a couple. I got a, our first special is gonna be for somebody that my company's doing. It's gonna be for another comic, and um, I'm excited about it. It's gonna be huge. I like everything. It's a big name person. Uh huh. And uh, it's gonna be huge. Male or female? Uh, male. And and then what do you do? You're gonna shoot it we're gonna at shoot a club. It. Uh, we're gonna shoot it. Uh, actually, we're not gonna do it. At, we're gonna do a couple times at a club, and then we're gonna shoot it at a at a at a location. Okay. And then and then what's your, what's the plan? Like you go to uh, uh, something like Three Arts and, and pitch it, or do you go directly to a Netflix and pitch it? Well, we'll figure that out. We're gonna see. We're probably gonna go straight to Netflix or Sony. Sony also interested in a couple things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And plus, they got the access to those. Uh, those uh, fucking gaming systems so you can just watch it on there too. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, they came to us about race wars with that. And I'm so, like, yeah, that's a good... So PlayStation's producing shows? Yeah, a lot of our, uh, a lot of our listeners, they, they're gamers too. You know, they play so you can listen and watch it right through that, through your device. That's, yeah. That changes the game too. <laughs> that yeah. changes the ball game. Yeah, that's interesting. There's so many outlets now. For and they pan for stuff. Yeah, there's so many outlets now for content, and I just wonder if there's going to be a huge flush at some point when they don't make enough money, or if it's just going to keep growing. I just want to know where all this well, content and material is going to end up. 
I remember uh, some channel used to have a show. Uh, they had a show about a fail pilots. They only play, They showed just all the pilots that didn't make it. And Jack Black had one of the funny ones that was on NBC, but it never got on TV. But they just showed all the fail pilots. I thought it was a great idea to show all the shit. What do you mean? Like they just show pilots who like they wanted to be pilots. No, pi- were- no, the pilots that the TV programs that didn't make oh, it on TV. Oh, failed pilot. I pilot, like they're not like airplane pilots. pilots. No, you go back on the nine eleven story. <laughs> 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 but yeah, all the failed pilots. I'm like, I'm interested. A lot of good fucking shows don't make it on. Yeah, just because the network owns it and be like, maybe it don't fit on our network, so nobody gets to see it. Yeah, it's like no, show that shit. We still want to see that. I would love to see old stuff that big stars used to be in and didn't make it. Dave Chappelle said he killed more pilots than Al-Qaeda. So that's, that's a well, pilot, well, how, pilot. Did he, how did he kill the pilots? I don't understand. <laughs> no, that was because he was, he was on it because he said he was oh, so bad oh, at acting yeah. that it, the projects never went through. That's funny. Yeah. But it seems like now there's so many shows where you have like big names. Like you'll get like, you know, Judd Apatow, then this star, then this star, then this star, and this producer, and and still they don't get on the air. Still and meanwhile, Netflix spending ten billion dollars on like crappy shows. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to watch all the Chappelle pilots that didn't go on TV? Yeah. I would watch the shit out of that. He should he should make a YouTube channel of that. But he would have to buy each one from each network. I think he was on a contract with NBC at that time, I huh. believe. It might have been CBS, but he would have to buy it from them and then but if he could just do that, take it and that shit would be Hilar- Everybody would watch it. Have you been? I, 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 you've been on a writer on some shows, right? Like, yeah, Colin Quinn, Tough Crowd, and uh, Are We There Yet? I wrote a couple of uh, things on there, but I had a recurring character on that show as well. Oh yeah, Ice Cube produced that. Yeah, Terry Crews was the lead. Christian Finnegan was on it too. So it's just a lot, lots of stuff. Trying to stay busy. And how many years had you been doing it when you could say to yourself, "Okay, I found my voice." I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so twenty years in. No, I, I, I mean, no, maybe like. Remnants of it five years in, really got the hang of it, I think around 10 years in, lost it 12 years in, got it back 13 years in. <laughs> what does it mean, lost it? No, I'm joking. Oh. But you know, things change and your, your voice develops and matures and gets, you know, it just, you build layers on top of it. You should, uh, you should also write a book. You yeah, yeah, I'm thinking it. about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a meeting with Columbia, Columbia Publishing. <laughs> oh, okay. And um, and you're still performing all the time at the clubs. Well, you always perform here. I always see you perform here. Yes, sir. Are you performing on Tuesday, by the way? Here? What's Tuesday? May eighth. Uh, I think somebody sent me something about. Is that a, what's the show? Uh, I, it's 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 people who subscribe to some stuff I do. We but we're, we're rented the club for the day, and I'm emceeing. Okay, I think I yeah. might be doing that. Yes, That's excellent. Yes. Good. I think Candy just asked me that today. Oh, okay. He texted me about it. Yeah. I think ten thirty. I think I went on at ten or something like that. Or something eight. like that. Yeah. Because yeah. we're starting a little late. Okay. So, um, and what's what is what's the show? What is it about? What is this? just do just do your thing. All right. Yeah. My job always remained the same. Yeah. Kill them. And 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 well, well, that's just it. When so the other question was, when did you stop caring if the audience was responding to you? And I'm sure there's always an element that you want the audience to respond. That's why you're there on the stage. Right. But when did it start? Like, you know. I think early on people get in a little bit of a panic when the audience is not responding while they're still on the stage. Right. When you kind of built the when did you kind of build the thick skin? Once I knew I could get them when I want to get them or if I don't get them it's not a big deal <laughs> because uh they could just be a bad crowd. But once you just got once I've got confidence in my shit, I knew I didn't have to worry about the crowd because I knew I could give it to them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so 20 years would you say there's any um kind of Hacks to shortcut the twenty years. Like you, you and you and Tony had every opportunity 
to hack it. Uh, so maybe there isn't a way because you know you were working with each other and you were both super talented. You saw Chris's rise. You'd been in the club since you were ten years old. Um, what would you do differently now to kind of in- increase the pace? Um, I, I I don't think you want to take the shortcut in anything that you're really passionate about and you really want to be a big part of your life. Yeah, you want to taste and feel and see and experience all of it. I do. I want to know every nut and bolt on this fucking ship if I'm going to be the captain. Like who who are right now, for instance, you're always trying to improve. Who are the comedians that are most influencing you right now? Other than me? <laughs> well, I'm assuming you always have like yeah, watch mentors, everybody. virtual and real. I still, you know, Patrice, he's dead, but Patrice O'Neill still influences me. Greg Giraldo, dead, still influences me. Both good friends of mine, really good friends of mine. Does it bother you that you're, you're, the people you want to emulate are both dead? <laughs> no, I like that because I moved up a notch when they, got, when they died. <laughs> everybody moves up a notch. Uh-huh. But, uh, it, it, you know, it was weird though. Comedy brought more death in my life than anything else. More death came in my life because of comedy. From owners, from Manny, the seller dying of Lucien, to fucking DeStefano, Geraldo, Patrice. Do you think it's because comedians in general um, have kind of this, people always say there's this little broken quality to someone who's going up there and, you know, trying to get 12 people to laugh in a, in a that bar. Too, yeah, that's part of it too. But I think it's also that um, once you become a comedian, we're all the same age. That the whole world, it's like, no matter if you're 25 or 55. So now your friends can be 35 years older than you. Mm-hmm. So now, and they die, they can die. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you just got a different group of people you're around now. You don't realize how, like, your circle changes when you get into comedy, but it changes. So, so how did you, um, I, w- I want to talk, I, I really liked Michelle Wolf's performance at the White House yeah. Correspondence Center. Loved it. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, I thought she did what she was supposed to do. She stuck to her guns. Yeah, and and she's got a show to promote, and she knows that the real audience was the TV audience, not the audience. Yes, and she the, played to the right audience. Right. That room, that room in there is a hell gig. Yeah. These people ain't here for laughing at... That's not a laughing crowd. And right. even the laugh she got, I was like, this. that's a, unbelievable. That's a great thing. This is like getting laughs at a wake. Yeah, but she stuck to her material. I know everybody at home was like, "This, oh shit, you heard this bitch." So she did the right thing, and, and yeah. So how'd you get that gig to be a commentator? How were, how did they pick you to be CBS? There? Yeah, I've done a lot of stuff for CBS. I've done all the newses. I've done Good Morning America for the longest. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, again, I guess it's just a matter of like keeping in the mix, and then yeah. these things eventually happen. Yeah, CBS. I've done for the last two or three years with them for that correspondence thing. And That's from doing a lot of stuff with them. So Michelle's a great example, though. Like, she, like, so we're we're obviously we're on the second floor of Stand Up New York doing this podcast. She was doing open mics downstairs for like yeah. just like four or five years ago. Yeah, and she kind of moved up fast. Yeah. Well, you know, she's she did it every fucking night. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it might be like fast in years, but as far as shows and jokes, it's been a long try. I'm not, I've been there the whole time Michelle's been here. So she worked hard, man. We we treat these clubs like this is a gem to us. And she's always working out in the gym. So yeah. as long as you're in the gym, nigga, you got a chance to knock out somebody. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's interesting. And so, she knocked that show out. So like right now, it seems like, obviously you perform all around, but Race Wars, I feel like you're getting more and more known for that. Like that seems to be like your and biggest a media thing. Yeah, and uh, uh, what's... You know, a I want to promote it. It's it's an excellent podcast. Thank you. You gonna have me on the podcast? Yes, wanna, when you want to come on. Yes, a- anytime. I'm, I'm right, Wednesday, on. six p.m. You there?
Uh, yeah, next Wednesday, 6 p.m., I could do it. Excellent. So, uh, and then... Yes. Um, it, it's fun, and then do you ever, so Kurt Metzger, who used to write for Inside Amy Schumer, he used yeah. to be on the show, obviously a lot. And um, w- was there anything uncomfortable when he was having his? You know, he there was some racial stuff, but then he got ostracized a little bit. No, that was very comfortable. <laughs> I laughed the whole way through that. It was all bullshit. Why do you think like the world's become so sensitive to comedians lately? That's just because everybody wants to try to shut somebody down sometimes, or. Make their voice uh, heard, even if their voice is stupid. <laughs> so yeah. I guess also as comedians are these are are being recognized as these modern philosophers. Like you have John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. That's where people get their news instead of the 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 BS other news channels. Right. And so I think comedians are being acknowledged as having something to say as opposed to just telling one liner jokes. But right. But the but people got to remember not to put that responsibility on comedians mm-hmm. because we just going to be a reflection of what's, ha- of what's happening in society. Mm-hmm. So if the news sucks, <laughs> then you're going to have a anti-comedy news that's making fun of the fucking news sucking. But don't think that the, that's the news. <laughs> Because John Stewart ain't the news, right? I don't care how much he makes you laugh and go, uh, it ain't the news. He he even said it himself. He comes on after cartoons that curse at each other. <laughs> it's like don't take this as the news, but just take it as a different uh, like perspective on what the news is doing. So Sherrod Small, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James. Everybody should listen to. Race Wars podcast. What other stuff? How else can oh, people find you? Yeah, go to smallworldcomedy.com, a uh, website that have a lot of information on there. And we got a, a show on May 14th, uh, Small World, uh, Me Familiar Part 1. And it's uh, it's going to be May 14th, 8 p.m. at the Comedy Cellar. Go to ComedyCellar.com. It's tickets. We got Sam J and Chase coming through. And I think Leslie Jones. The last week of SNL saw a bunch of SNL people. Chris Red's on it. And Drew Michael, it's Chase and Michael's uh, Drew Michael's birthday too. So at the same time, yeah, I, I like both Michael J and Drew Michael. Yeah, they are a couple days apart. All right, well, thanks again. Thank you for having me, man. And thanks, yeah, racewars.com. Go to patreon.com uh, slash racewars. You're a good man, James. <laughs> a good man. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?